winter is in full effect in the capital region in all its frigid, snowy glory. But as always, we're staying warm and busy here at the Times Union. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. If you would measure the heartbeat of a community, take the pulse of her airport. We'll take a look back at the impact of the urban renewal program in Saratoga Springs in the 1960s. Urban renewal wiped out the entire black neighborhood in Saratoga Springs. And the Chinese community in the capital region and around the world are preparing to celebrate the Lunar New Year. The winter is ending. Truly great news are coming. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, let's start with a look at what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. Casey Seiler joins us once again for our headlines segment and the editor of the Times Union. There's nobody better than the editor of the Times Union to give us all the lowdown on what appeared in the paper and online this week. So we'll start with uh, one of the top stories that just dropped. We're talking on Thursday and uh, it involves the Catholic Church. Can you tell us about it? Yeah. Ed McKinley, who is part of our outstanding Capitol Bureau, wrote a story on Moves made in the past few years by Catholic dioceses, or specifically Catholic bishops in New York, that tend to squirrel away financial assets that are controlled by those same bishops, if they are not strictly technically controlled by the diocese proper, that are now off limits in many ways Um, from potential use to make good plaintiffs in civil cases that have been brought under the Child Victims Act, which is legislation that passed after a long uh, obstruction by Democrats in the state Senate, passed in 2019 after, um, after Democrats took a very strong majority, and lifted uh, the time bar on um, civil complaints surrounding cases of alleged child sexual abuse, I should say. Needless to say, alas, um, various Catholic dioceses, including right here in the capital region, have been the target of many of these uh, lawsuits more than any other category of, of institution, without a doubt. It has forced four of the state's eight dioceses to go into bankruptcy Uh, including out west in Buffalo and Rochester. And of course, once uh, an organization goes into bankruptcy court, it is that much harder um, for plaintiffs to potentially get financial uh, recompense. And it does tend to reduce the amount of recompense that's available to them. In the kind of main incident or, or deal that Ed is talking about, the church uh, sold its uh, Fidelis Care insurance company in 2018 as this legislation um, was moving towards passage. 
and put 4.3 billion of the proceeds from that sale into um, an entity known as Mother Cabrini Health Foundation. Mother Cabrini is essentially uh, a lockbox, um, and the assets, those more than four billion contained there, are um, at this point uh, looking like they're going to be off limits to plaintiffs. That is a big story. Visit timesunion.com for more on that. Moving on to another big story down in Washington, the impeachment proceedings are underway of former President Donald Trump. And uh, our Emily Munson, our Capitol correspondent there, got some reaction from the New York congressional delegation. Can you tell us more about what what's going through their minds right now? Yeah, I mean, not surprisingly, the uh, the response fell pretty much along uh, partisan lines. Of course, this matter is now in the Senate. Um, he was, uh, uh, that is, former President Trump was impeached by the House, not quite along um, party lines, but pretty close. Uh, needless to say, uh, Chuck Schumer is not only the senior senator from New York, but he is now the majority leader of the U.S. Senate. And he uh, has taken a, a, a central role in this matter, obviously. But it continues to be a matter of partisan contention, even back in the House, where in just a absolutely delightful detail from um, Emily's preview of impeachment, she noted that Elise Stefanik claimed that Democrats were proceeding with a second impeachment of the former president solely to um, raise campaign cash. And Elise Stefanik did this in an email sent for fundraising purposes for her own political campaign. You just, you cannot make this stuff up. Well, the stories that are coming out of Washington are certainly uh, fascinating. Um, let's move it back to the pandemic and our uh, lovingly dubbed Corona Local coverage. Uh, there's a couple of things here that are worth mentioning, I think, this week. Top of the list, Governor Andrew Cuomo says that sporting events can resume. What's what's the deal with that? Yes, this actually falls under the heading. As you noted, Corona Local is sort of the slug on our daily budget for the, the shorthand for the story file for um, anything having to do with the pandemic's effect in our region. But then again, there is Corona NY, which is the, the story slug for, for state developments as well. And yeah, you're right. Governor Cuomo uh, announced this week that major sporting events can uh, begin reopening uh, in the coming weeks with, of course, limited numbers of attendees. You will have to provide a negative COVID test taken 72 hours before you go to the game, as it were. And of course, be ready um, to have your temperature checked when you go in as you know, if you've if you've gone to the gym lately, you're you're used to that as well. It's very much on the model that um, that was proposed and accepted by uh, the State Department of Health that allowed people in to see um, the Bills playoff game from uh, from last month. You know, get a COVID test. You will pay for it, meaning you will you will pay the cost of getting that test. And you've got to present it and be ready to give your temperature when you go into the arena or the stadium. Also, local high school sports are starting back up. Uh, what's the story there? Yeah, Albany County Executive um, Dan McCoy announced that because the seven-day average for new infections um, has fallen below 4%, it hasn't fallen far below 4%, but it stayed uh, below that, he was uh, ready to give the okay to um, high school so-called high-risk sports. That includes football, wrestling, volleyball, and, and cheerleading. 
And uh, of course, schools uh, and teams will have to have protocols in place. You know, same deal. Yes, we can move ahead. We can um, we can take these steps towards opening up and getting back to something approaching normal. But let's do it in a very smart way. That is great news for our sports desk, who've been busily uh, covering that news. All right. The Albany Airport could get some major upgrades. What are we looking forward to there? This is sort of the culmination of a two-year effort by the airport's uh, leadership. Uh, as Bill Calderon, who's CEO of the airport, said, the, he quoted Billy Mitchell, uh, you know, the famous uh, aviator, who said, if you would measure the heartbeat of a community, take the pulse of her airport, and noted that it's been, while there are constant improvements and changes at the airport, there hasn't been really a a master, massive uh, plan in um, a little bit less than than three decades. Now, a lot of the items that are touted in this plan, which imagines what the airport might look like in 2030, not surprisingly, are very reflective of what the airport is dealing with right now in the pandemic. Changes would include tagging and putting on a conveyor your own luggage to eliminate a touch point elongating the the kind of vestibule as you go through the the security area in order to you know spread people out uh, perhaps more social distancing at lounges you wonder what the master plan would be like had it not been for the pandemic because so many of of these uh, so many of these proposals are kind of designed to to kind of harden the facility against uh, against a health threat like the one we've been facing for the past year now. Indeed. And the last topic we're going to hit on today, our beloved nipper statue that kind of defines part of the Albany skyline. What's the story there? What's going to happen with our, our little dog? Well, luckily nothing, or at least nothing at this point. But a Long Island um, businessman who is a big fan of, uh, you know, the RCA dog, a nipper, who sits uh, atop a storage facility, a big building in the warehouse district, which of course is a part of Albany that has experienced something of a renaissance over the course of the last 10 years or more. And he basically made the case, hey, if anything ever happens to that building, if it ever gets redeveloped, or if it looks like Nipper is sort of falling into disrepair to the point that anybody ever wants to get rid of it, he would be happy to put a crane up there and and haul it away. And obviously, this would basically be like tearing uh, the heart (laughs) out out of Albany. So I say to that man right now on this broadcast, go get your own great big statue of a dog because... If the Times Union has anything to do with it, uh, Albany will be holding on to this one. Indeed. My fierce protective instincts kicked into gear as well. Well, you can read about Nipper and you can see lots of pictures of Nipper throughout history on uh, timesunion.com. And you can read more about all the stories that we covered. Casey, thank you so much for joining me and we'll touch back with you next week. Just my pleasure. In the 1960s, the city of Saratoga Springs began tearing down many buildings in neighborhoods the city deemed blighted. The process was part of the city's Urban Renewal Project, a federally underwritten program that lasted until 1974. While many in the city today claim it revitalized the spa city by ridding it of rundown buildings, the process drove out most of the city's black and Jewish populations. 
leaving the Saratoga of today with a remarkable lack of diversity. Reporter Wendy Libertor recently examined dozens of documents and photos of the city's urban renewal project. We chatted recently about this element of the city's history and its implications. Can you tell me a little bit more about uh, your story? I wanted to find a Black history story for this month. And uh, I've been meaning to do something on urban renewal in Saratoga Springs because basically urban renewal wiped out the entire Black neighborhood in Saratoga Springs. The neighborhood backed up. It was mostly Congress Street. It backed up to the old hotels, the Grand Union and the United States, the Grand Hotels. And once those were demolished, the city kind of got a little run down in that area. But in its heyday, it was full of small businesses, cigar shops, bar rooms, restaurants. You know, Hattie's Chicken Shack was there. But it was also a very mixed neighborhood. There was a lot of uh, Jewish rooming houses. Uh, there was a very well-known Jewish bakery. Phallix Bakery was there where every, all the hotels bought the pumpernickel bread and rye bread from the bakery. Apparently, it smelled heavenly uh, in that neighborhood every night when Phallix would you know, turn up the uh, ovens. City fathers at the time decided, well, we're going to make this a better city, a more beautiful city. Their whole thing was to get rid of slums and blight. They considered this area a slum. So they basically went home to home, property owner to property owner, and said, this is what your house is assessed at or your business. We will pay you more than that. You know, like a lot of them were like maybe assessed at $7,000. we will give you $11,000. we will also help you find somewhere else to live. But we are taking down your home. There's no question about it. This was, um, again, in the 1960s. At that point, nobody really fought it. Uh, urban renewal continued through the 70s and 80s in other parts of the city. There was some pushback and the historical society was established and now they won't let you take down a lot of buildings. Where did all these displaced people and businesses go? You know, back in the 60s, this was very difficult for a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people moved to New York City. Some moved to Poughkeepsie. I have the deeds for every single property a lot of people moved out to Jefferson Terrace, which is the HUD low-income housing project. And anyway, after they tore everything down in its place, they put up a, a mall, parking lots, uh, some government buildings, a senior center, more uh, subsidized housing. And that's kind of what it is today. I mean, things have, you know, the Embassy Suites is now in that plaza. There's a Wendy's. There wasn't a Wendy's in the uh, 70s when things were being built. But uh, it totally changed the landscape on that side of the city. So that amounted in, you know, my third party estimation as a tremendous loss of culture and character for the city. Absolutely. You know? I talked to one man who's 91 years old, Sidney Gordon, 
who remembers that area fondly, he said, you know, a lot of people called it progress. And that's what the city fathers said. This is progress. And we're, you know, we're making the city better. But yes. It sounds like they're saying we're making the city whiter. Exactly. I haven't yet found the census figures that those are coming through. But, you know, there wasn't a huge population. It was probably about 5% at that point of black people. But now it's 1%. You know, it never really came back. You know, Matt Veach, who's the supervisor in Saratoga Springs, and he's basically the expert on this because it was his grandfather's project. Donald Veach uh, said, you know, it was it was very difficult for a lot of people. And there's reasons why we don't do urban renewal today, that it is a thing of the past. How did the fa- the city fathers and, and in general, how did they define urban renewal? Like, what's the definition of it? The exact definition, I'm not sure, but it I have it in my story. But basically, it was to erase slums and urban blight. That is the exact language they use. So now a lot of these buildings, I must say, were abandoned because a lot of the rooming houses just didn't have the same number of visitors. Sort of in the 50s, things started declining in Saratoga Springs. People weren't coming up for the track. The track wasn't popular with families as it is today. And new, you know, like the Holiday Inn was being built and they had air conditioning and TVs. These old rooming houses were basically no air conditioning. They were just rooms and uh, people didn't find them sufficient enough or luxurious enough to bother visiting anymore. And um, there was a huge effort in Saratoga Springs to bring the city back, though, because You know, Matt Beach talks about it. He says it was a gritty city at that point. I have many photos that will be included in this showing, you know, that the buildings were run down, but they were next to other buildings that were well kept. So, so, but it didn't matter. They, They took it all down. Even if you were able to keep up your home, it didn't matter. It was, it was part of this designated area We're taking it over, we're plowing it over, and we're rebuilding. We're going to have a parking lot here or, you know, a friendlies restaurant. No one fought it at that point. Oh, that's so tragic. Now, what, you know, flash forward, uh, my math, 60, 50 years now, you know, more than 50 years, like, is the city doing anything today to kind of, um, to make amends for kicking these people out? No, they feel that. They did the right thing. Saratoga is what Saratoga is today. You know, a very vibrant city. The end, they call it the envy of upstate New York. And they believe it's because of urban renewal. Do they mourn the lack of diversity at all? No. (laughs) They They don't seem to. However, there has been a group that has been put together by the Commissioner of Public Safety, Robin Dalton who wants to do a sort of celebration of that particular area of the city, honoring the many Black families, as well as there was a lot of Italian and Irish people, as well as uh, a lot of Jews. They were part of the first round, but the Jews were also part of the second round, which was North Broadway. 
and that's where they had all their rooming houses. Although they did have some in the on the west side too. Now tell me about tell me about the photos that you unearthed and are, you know, showcasing in your story. Tell me about some of the, you know, really interesting things that you found. Well, some of them are from the George S. Bolster collection, which is at the Saratoga Springs History Museum. Those are the oldest in the package. And they show, for example, Hattie's Chicken Shack, which has since moved to Phyla Street and is one of the survivors of urban renewal. They took her business and said, you're going to move over here. There's Jack's Harlem Club, you know, which was a bar where, you know, they had dancing girls. It was kind of like the cotton club of, of Saratoga Springs, you know, so they have images of that. There's also lots of images of buildings that were lost, that were more up to date. I have pictures from the 60s and 70s as well as pictures from what's there today. And some of the buildings you can see, they, they were beautiful historical buildings that the historical society would have a fit today to tear down. And actually, this whole thing started Saratoga Springs Historical Preservation uh, Society, where now they fight like hell to stop the city from demolishing any building. After the break, how the capital region's Chinese community is celebrating the Lunar New Year amid a pandemic. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Ranieri's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Chinese communities around the world are celebrating the Lunar New Year this week. Also called the Spring Festival, the celebration traditionally involves traveling to visit family, hosting large gatherings, and sharing delicious meals. The pandemic, however, has put a damper on those very important aspects of the holiday, Reporter Pete DeMola, who lived in China for almost a decade and speaks Mandarin, spoke to several Chinese families in the capital region to see how they have adapted their celebrations this year to remain safe. I spoke to him to learn more. Now let's talk about the the Chinese community in the capital region here and how they are coping with how the pandemic is affecting their celebrations. So here in the capital region, as you know, we just came out of a census year. And my sources tell me that there's about they they guess between four and five hundred you know Chinese families here right in our region. You, here in the capital region, there's two large events. There's a Lunar New Year celebration in Clifton Park and at the Egg, and both of those have been called off. 
and the people that, you know, with which I've spoken have just been like very just accepting about the whole thing. And, you know, you don't, you, you don't really see a lot of that kind of division um, like we have here in our culture of people, you know, trying to fight that here locally. Right. And then and, and sure. in mainland China from the reporting that I've read, Again, you know, with those migrant workers who are being forced to stay home, it's just more of a sense of re- resignedness of just like, well, this is like really bad and I hate it, but it's something we have to do. Sure. I got to imagine it's it's extremely disappointing on, on many levels. So some of the families that you talk to are doing, as you said, small celebrations at home. Mm-hmm. And one of the families that you interviewed sent you a video um, of a song, (laughs) a little girl, adorable little girl singing a song that is traditionally sung at the Lunar New Year. Can you talk a little bit more about that? That was uh, Wei Xin who I interviewed. Um, She and her family live in Gilderland and um, she's a native Beijinger. She emigrated to America relatively recently, so she's still kind of carrying on like the the traditions like you see in the video um, with her daughter, who's seven. My, my daughter, I mean, you know, we just need to prepare a video for Happy Chinese New Year for her Chinese school. Therefore, I put on uh, search for YouTube for a few Chinese New Year songs. I say, you pick one. Okay, so she went through and then she picked this one. And then when I look at her choice, on the wordings, then I find out, oh, this is actually just the right one for it. Because this particular song was created in 1945 right after World War II. And then the China at that time really needs a lot of hope. So the songwriter at that time, putting a lot of hope in each one of the wordings. So it's um, it's really, really interesting. Um, so I can kind of uh, translate a few words I'm reading here for people might want to hear. So one part writing down this, after countless difficulties, all the hearts are looking forward for a good news. The winter is ending. Surely great news are coming. We can refer to the one saying, warm spring breeze are going to blow us through. So in every house and every street, in people's face, they're smiling. When we see you, the first thing we're going to say, congratulations, congratulations to you, and congratulations to all of us. And it, it, it really is a cute video. It's adorable. And at the end of the video, you see her holding out her hand. And, and, and what she's basically saying is like, can I have my red envelope, please? And that's, that's the um, envelope with money that you give to like kids during the holiday. You say in your article, you point out that Chinese culture is not monolithic. So right. different regions of the country celebrate in different ways. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how that, how you experience that? I, I, I would say the only thing monolithic and kind of ubiquitous throughout the country, aside from the travel, is, you know, the equivalent of New Year's Eve. Everyone watches CCTV, New Year's Gala. And it's like a really, it's like a really long, you know, it's equivalent to like 
Dick Clark's thing. Rocket New Year's Eve. That's it. Yeah. And it's equivalent to that. It's really corny. And everyone kind of rolls their eyes, but it's just something you do. And it's like endless. I remember like when I was in a, a Beijing suburb with a friend's family one year, it just seemed to go on forever, just like a variety show. So, I mean, you know, regional kind of differences aside from the food, the fireworks is what Wei Chin said in, in our interview. Uh, I lived in the north. So, you know, really kind of at the beginning and the end of the festival, it would be just like a massive firework display. Why firecrackers? <laughs> you, you in Beijing, you know, in the midnight in Beijing, uh, firecrackers just blow out the city. <laughs> and then originally the story is so Nian, the year, the word year, was a uh, monster. Now, this monster sleeping the whole year in the bottom of the ocean, but just right that New Year's Eve day, he went out from the ocean and he's so hungry, he eats everything he sees. That animals and human. But this monster, then people discovered he is afraid of red color because his eyes are sensitive to red. And then his ears are so sensitive to all the sharp, sparkling sounds. Then people figure out, I'll put red colors everywhere and uh, put firecrackers and then scare this Nian monster away. So that's why you go uh, to see Chinese, all oh, red, red, red. If you go to a temple fair in Beijing, in New Year's, during the New Year's celebration, Beijing's have eight temple fairs, all in the Asian parks and Asian buildings. And then you go there from far distance, there's a sea of red. <laughs> the red lanterns and red china is like hundreds, of, if not thousands. So that's the reason originally. <laughs> what do you say to somebody to wish them luck and prosperity for the New Year? There's two ways. I mean, you could do a direct translation of Happy New Year, which is Xin Nian Kuala. Or alternatively, you can uh, say Chun Jia Kuala, which is Spring Festival. Uh, Kuala means happy, so it's Chun Nian Kuala or Xin Nian Kuala. Happy New Year or Happy Spring Festival. But that definitely sounds like um, a good time for two weeks. A lot of happy celebrations, something that we could really use right now, for sure. Yeah, and I think um, a lot of the people that I've interviewed have echoed similar sentiments of, it's been a really long, grueling year, and let's just try to make the most of it in a safe, happy way. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Albany Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom.